0: All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12, Matthew 5 verses 1 through 12. Let me read it to you. It says, seeing the crowds, he, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied." Now, as we dig deeper tonight into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it'll help us to remember the predominant attitudes that the Jews, and especially their leaders, uh, had at the time of this message. Now, let me put it to you this way. Have you ever heard somebody say something, but you didn't hear the context, and there's a possibility you you misinterpreted what they said because you didn't hear the context? What we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount. There's always been so much debate over the years, over the Sermon on the Mountain, who was it to, and what was Jesus actually teaching, and all this kind of stuff. And I've come to realize that if you take the time to let the scripture speak and show you the full context, you can correctly interpret what Jesus is saying in the context of what was happening. So we're gonna take a look at the context and the predominant attitudes of the Jews who were listening, of course Gentiles, as we saw last week, the Gentiles were included in this message, but predominantly it was the Jews who were listening to this message. What were their predominant attitudes at that time? How did they see the kingdom? And then you'll understand why and how Jesus comes at his teaching about the kingdom of God, and it'll explode for us as we go into it. So the Jews believed in the prophecies about a coming kingdom in Israel, under the rule of the son of David, whichever that, whoever that descendant of David was, in which they would be blessed and not be removed from their land ever again. They knew the prophecy said that one day there's going to be a king, and he's going to be a descendant of David, and he's going to come, and he's going to rule and reign, and he's going to rule and reign forever, and it's going to be in Israel, and they would never be removed from the kingdom ever again. Put a bookmark here in Matthew 5, and go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of the many places that we see this prophecy, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God is speaking to David, King David, through the prophet Nathan, starting in verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, David. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, let's be honest. Have the Jews been brought back into the land never to be disturbed again? That their enemies aren't bothering them anymore? As much as they're back in the land, the final fulfillment of this prophecy has not happened yet. But God himself said, I'm going to do this. And the Jews knew this. And all through the Old Testament, there were these pictures of this coming kingdom. And I'm going to show you a couple more about this. But the Jews, when Jesus comes and he speaks about the kingdom of God. Now keep in mind, Matthew over and over uses the word kingdom of heaven because he wouldn't use the word God. Because of the Jews, didn't you say the name God? So, But when he talks about the kingdom of heaven and blessed are them for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the coming kingdom of God on the earth. The Jews believed in it. They were expecting it. But many of them thought that since the promises were made to Abraham and his descendants about this coming kingdom, that all they had to do to enter the kingdom was to be descendant of Abraham. They just thought the promises were Abraham to Abraham and his descendants. Therefore, if I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm in. And Jesus is going to be starting to blow that thinking up. Go to Genesis chapter 17 real quick. We're going to see a couple of things come out from these prophecies that the Jews kind of missed. In Genesis chapter 17, look at verses 1 through 8. all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, look closely. Here God promises that he's going to give them him and his descendants the land, and he's going to be their God and going to give them an everlasting possession of the land. But what did he also say? You're going to be the father of what? Of a multitude of nations. Don't miss that. That's going to be important later on. Go to Daniel chapter 7. As you know from our study last week, we came to realize that the kingdom of God is not just for the Jews. But the Gentiles will be included in the kingdom of God. But Daniel chapter 7, look at this prophecy. Look at verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Destroyed. So here again, we see another prophecy about this one that's coming. He looks like a son of man. He looks human, but he was brought before the Ancient of Days. He's brought before God the Father, and he was given a kingdom. But in this kingdom, who's going to worship him? All nations. First off, the Jews thought they were the only ones that are going to be in the kingdom, because they thought it was just to them. But on top of that, they thought all they had to do to be in the kingdom was just be Jewish. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Look at verses 7 through 10. John the Baptist is speaking here in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says, But when he, this is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what he says to him is this. Don't think you're okay because you're Abraham's descendants. God's able to raise up descendants from Abraham from these stones if he wants to. You actually got to understand, well, as you know from before, from our study last week, in order to enter the kingdom, there has to be repentance. See, others taught and believed that entry and prominence also into the kingdom was tied to their own righteousness. First, the Jews believed in a coming kingdom, but they thought that they were automatically in because they were Jewish. Abraham was their father. And on top of that, they were taught that how you get prominence in the kingdom is by how righteous you were. And they would compare themselves with each other to see who was more righteous, and they would jockey for position. Remember how James and John even asked Jesus, who's going to sit on your right and who's going to sit on your left in the kingdom? Go to Luke chapter 18. Now, all this that I'm showing you is going to lay the foundation for when we start to actually break down the Sermon on the Mount. So stick with me tonight. In Luke chapter 18, look at verses 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. This is Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and he treated, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here Jesus tells this parable and he says, Look, this guy thought he was righteous, thought he's going to be okay in the kingdom. But the tax collector, it's going to be important later on tonight, the sinner who humbled himself and said, God, be merciful merciful to me. That guy went home justified, not the one who was supposedly, quote unquote, more righteous. So as you're going to see, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is going to point out that only the perfectly righteous can enter the kingdom and no one has that righteousness within themselves. Remember last week's study? How in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and also in verse 28, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then he says you must be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect. The only way you're going to enter the kingdom is not because you're automatically a Jew and therefore you're in. That's not how it works. Secondly, it's not tied to your righteousness because if you're going to go in on your own righteousness, you have to be perfect. And if you can't be perfect, you can't enter the kingdom. And so keep this all in mind, because as Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount and he starts to lay out the things we're going to begin to look at tonight, you're going to see that he was dealing with a predominant understanding of the kingdom to come and how it was and who it was for and how you got into it, that he was going to be blowing up in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as you're going to see in this three-chapter sermon... Entry into this kingdom to come is not only for the Jews, but for all who will humble themselves and acknowledge their sin and turn to God for His forgiveness and His righteousness provided for us through the only way into the kingdom, which is through faith in His Son, the Messiah, Jesus. Go with me to Romans chapter 4. Paul actually lays some of the things we've just been talking about out in great detail here. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 25, but I want you to see it for yourself. Paul lays out in Romans chapter 4, dealing with Abraham and his righteousness. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In other words, what did he accomplish in his own strength? For if Abraham was justified by what he did, by works, He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? The scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Some of your translations probably say credited to him as righteousness. By the way, that's a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse six. Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. And the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes here, Paul quotes from Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 where David writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin." David doesn't say, blessed is the one who's righteous in his own ability and he's a good guy. Blessed are those whom God doesn't count their sin against them. And, and he lays this out. By the way, for those of you that work and you get your paycheck, does your boss say, I'm going to give you a gift today when he gives you your paycheck? No, it's, you earned it. It's what, it's what you're due. It's not a gift. You worked for it. But if you did nothing and the boss gave you something, that's a gift. And what Paul lays out here is, Abraham didn't do anything but just believe what God said, and God gave him righteousness. It wasn't anything he earned. He didn't do anything to get righteousness except believe what God said. Yeah, well, that's what we're going to get to in a second. We're going to get to that next. So let's go down to verse 9. Is this blessing about how God will forgive your sin and give you righteousness, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? That's the Jews. Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that the faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It wasn't after, but before he was circumcised. Actually, if you go back and look, Genesis 15:6, where he believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. It, Abraham doesn't get cir- circumcised until chapter 17. So he was given righteousness before he was circumcised. That's important. Keep reading. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. By the way, what's the sign of our our conversion? What's the sign that we have in the church today of our faith? Baptism. Does baptism save you? No, it's just a sign of what has already happened when we have trusted Christ by faith. So he, he says in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness, that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not just merely circumcised, you know, the Jewish people, but not just merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. By the way, keep that in mind. Do you not realize that the law didn't even come until later on? at the time of Moses, over 400 years later. Yet the Jews were teaching that if you obey the law and you are righteous and you tithe and you do all these things, God will give you righteousness according to your works and your righteousness. Paul's laying it out here. Guys, hang on for a second. Abraham was given righteousness 400 years before the law even came. What's the point of the law? To show us our sin. To show us our sin. It's an MRI. It's an MRI. The, law, the MRI doesn't give you cancer, but it reveals the cancer that's already there. Cat scan. Pet scan. Go ahead. Baptism before uh, belief has no, has no nothing. A baby. Exactly. It, mean, it, it means nothing. Because if you think you're okay because you were baptized as a baby, you're putting faith in your work. And if you were a baby, did you even make that decision for yourself or did someone do it for you? You see what I'm saying? You know? The Bible's real clear. Baptism's supposed to happen after your conversion. Actually, uh, there's a wonderful book called Brothers Were Not Professionals written by John MacArthur. And he deals with that whole concept in a chapter on that. And he deals with that in Colossians chapter 2 in great detail where he talks about the circumcision and the sign of the circumcision and baptism coming. And people say, well, that was the sign of... No, they received the sign of the circumcision, babies did, when they entered the family of Israel. We receive the sign of our circumcision, if you will, when we enter the family of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. All right. So verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." Well, it's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Where was that written? Genesis where? 17, where we just were just in just a little bit. He's quoting from there. I've made you the father of many or a multitude of nations in the presence of God in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed, against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be? He didn't weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the, works, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It was, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Like you just shared earlier, Glenn, his faith was evidenced by his actions. He didn't put faith in his actions. His faith was evidenced by action. He believed what God said. God said, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. I know your body's 100 years old. I know your wife's old, too, and she hasn't had a baby. But I'm able to just speak into existence the things that aren't and say they are and they are. And he then went home and put the do not disturb sign on the tent and acted in faith. And God was the one who made it work. That's the cool thing about those of us. How many of us were righteous before God saved us? We weren't even close. Hopefully you understand that. We'll be clearer on that a little bit later tonight. Well, how did you become righteous? Because God declared it. He offered it through Jesus. He's provided a way. You put your faith in what is said, and he can take something that doesn't exist and make it so. He can take someone who's not righteous, say the word, and you're righteous because of your faith and what he's promised. So keep this in mind. The Jews are excited to hear this message about the kingdom of God. But their thinking was, it's just for us. No, God had said all along that it wasn't just for the Jews. He also, their attitude was, we get into the kingdom because we're just Jewish. We're sons of Abraham, we're in. God says, it's not how it works. Oh, we get into the kingdom and we get prominence in the kingdom because of our righteousness, and God says is about to blow all of that up. The scripture makes it very, very clear. And so when we understand the context and what was the predominant attitude of the people uh, of the nation of Israel when Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount, it will help us now as we go through it to really understand what he's saying. Now at the same time, though, before we go any further, before we can break down the specifics of the Sermon on the Mount, verse by verse, which we're going to do, I need to deal with one more thing. Go to Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. There's also a lot of misunderstanding about the kingdom of God in the church today. And I want us to hopefully get this laid out before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Luke chapter 20, starting verse 9. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. He said, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone." Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus told this parable, and you look at other gospel accounts of this. The Pharisees knew he was talking about them and the nation of Israel. He told this parable, and he's talking about the nation of Israel, and he calls them the vineyard, and, and, and he gave them this land, and he gave them this vineyard, and he sent servants to go collect from them what he was expecting from them, and they beat the prophets and treated them shamefully, and he then says, I'm going to send my son, they'll respect my son. They, what they do to the son in the story? They killed him, took him outside the vineyard, outside the land and outside the city and just killed him. And what's the master going to do? He says, I'm going to remove them from the land and I'm going to give the vineyard to others. Now, because of this, since the Jews rejected Jesus and since Jesus himself said that God would give the vineyard to others because of their killing of his son, here's a question. Is the kingdom no longer promised to the Jews? is the kingdom no longer for the jews is it just for the church i hope you understand it's still for the jews too as much as jesus has planned all along that the kingdom would include jew and gentile and church and tribulation saints the bible is very very clear that as much as we've been grafted in and allowed to be a part of this kingdom to come he's not done with the nation of israel The promise to Israel still stands because of the forefathers. Go with me to Romans chapter 11. I was having a conversation years ago with a pastor about this whole topic. And he wasn't sure what he believed about God's future plan for Israel. And I said, Romans chapter 11 is so clear. It's so simple. He said, you're the first pastor I've ever heard that said Romans 11 was clear and simple. Well, let me just read it to you. See what you think. Romans chapter 11. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And of course, Paul answers the question, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Elijah said, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? God says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. By the way, let me just say this to you real quick. Whenever you see the word remnant in the Bible, it always refers to the Jews. The church isn't the remnant. The remnant are are Jewish people. The Bible's really clear about that. So, too, there's a remnant. Verse uh, 5, So too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David also says, let their table become a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened, so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. So he asks again. He's already said in verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected the Jews? By no means. And then he says in verse 11, so I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You want to double check me? You can go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21. God's laid out the whole history of the nation of Israel in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. He says you're going to do this and then I'm going to do that and you're going to do this and I'm going to do that. He knew what their whole story was going to be before it happened. And in verse 21 he says this, he says you're going to go after other gods and make me jealous. I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people and I'm going to use them to make you jealous. He said, now salvation has come to the Gentiles so to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass, the Jews trespass means riches for the world. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? I mean, he's saying, think about this for a minute. If their rejection has meant riches for the whole world, think how cool it's going to be when they're included. That's pretty cool. Now I'm speaking, verse 13, Paul says, "I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean, but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, in the verses we're going to skip over here, in, in the next verses, Paul pretty much says, don't consider yourself better than them. Because you were a wild olive shoot, and you were grafted into a natural olive plant. They had been cut off so you could be grafted in. But if God is able to graft you in being a wild olive shoot, it would be nothing for him to graft them back in being a natural And don't consider yourself better than them because he's not done with them. And now go to verse 25. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard the, regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too now they have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Folks, I hope this can sink in. If you're going to grasp the spirit of God, I'm going to want to help you with this. The kingdom of God was offered to the Jews. But all along, God knew that it was also going to include Gentiles. It's Been that plan all along. He said so in the prophecies. The Jews thought it was only for them. They missed it. They thought that they got in because they were Jewish. They missed it. They thought they were going to be getting in and moving up in the kingdom because of their righteousness. They totally missed it. But we've missed it in the church age today because we think that it's about us now. The same wrong mentality. Well, the kingdom's now about us. It's not about Israel anymore. It's about us. And God says, don't go down that road. Don't fall into that trap because you've been grafted in for a season. There's been a partial hardening. Jews are getting saved still, but only a few. God's saving mostly Gentiles in the world today. And he says, but that time period is going to come to a close, and he's going to finish what he started with Israel. And the kingdom will be offered back to Israel. And the Israel that survives the tribulation period will all be saved, every single one of them. You've heard me talk about this before. But what I want to do right before we start really diving into the Sermon on the Mount is show you a couple of passages that I found There are some passages in the Old Testament, many of them, but I'm just going to show you a couple that I believe speak of a humble brokenness and a confessing of their sin and a turning to God by the Jews in the last days. I actually have found prophecies that I think show what the Jews are actually going to say when they turn to Jesus at the end of the tribulation period. And it's kind of cool. Go to Psalm 106. You remember in Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and 45, Jesus said, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Psalm 106, look at verses 1. Well, we're just going to read the whole chapter. Here's a recounting of the history of the nation of Israel. It says, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever." Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he, God, saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert." So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but they sent a wasting, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company and flame burned the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea." Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then, he, then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and he would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the bale of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Remember from our study in Ezekiel, how the descendants of Phinehas were going to have that special place in the coming millennial kingdom in the temple because of Phinehas? Here's some more about that. They angered him, verse 20, uh, 32. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lip. Remember how he got mad and said, If we got to provide water for you, and because of that he missed the promised land? They didn't destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations, and they learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and played the whore in their deeds." Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. Remember that covenant he made with Abraham that we read about tonight? He remembered the covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God. And gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name. And glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. not cool? The Jews, I believe one day are going to realize this. And they're going to turn into him and say, we have sinned and our fathers have sinned. And it recounts their whole history. And they're going to cry out, save us. Oh, God, go to Jeremiah chapter 14. Oh, and by the way, when they have this attitude of repentance and they turn to God and his provision for their sin. They're going to be included in the kingdom. Jeremiah chapter 14, look at verses 17 through 22. You shall say to them this word. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. If I go out into the field, behold those pierced by the sword. If I enter the city, behold the diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Zion. Why have you struck us down, God, so that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. Look at this. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Now, we're not going to, for the sake of time, have you read it, but if you want to write down Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 24, you'll see that Daniel is in Babylon, and he's actually realizing that Jeremiah's prophecy said that their time in captivity in Babylon was only going to be 70 years, and so he realizes the time's about to come to an end, and the 70 years of their captivity in Babylon was about to come to an end, and so he starts to pray for his city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, and if you look, Daniel over and over says, we have sinned, and our fathers have sinned, over and over and over over. And then in around verse 20, it says, while I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, angel Gabriel came at this certain time and he brought me this message from God. And God said to him that 77s are decreed for Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And then it lists to Bring in uh, everlasting righteousness and to anoint a most holy place and all this stuff. Prophecies that have not fully been fulfilled yet. And then it goes on. If you know the prophecy there, it said that there's going to be seven, uh, by the way, 77s is 490 years. If you do the math, There was going to be 49 years from the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem until it was finally completed, and that was fulfilled to the day. And then there's going to be 434 years from that point on until the anointed one, actually the scripture says in the Hebrew language, the Messiah comes. And that was fulfilled literally to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. But then the prophecy says, but then the anointed one will be cut off. And as you know, he was killed. It's obvious in that prophecy there's a break there. And there's only one seven-year period that's left in that prophecy. Remember, 77s are decreed for Israel in the city of Jerusalem to bring in all this stuff that hasn't happened yet. And the Bible said what tonight in Romans chapter 11? Israel's been put on hold until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel's going to be saved. There's one last seven-year period. There's going to be an Antichrist that makes a covenant with many the Jews being included. And for the first three and a half years of that seven-year period, they're going to think they're okay, but then he's going to reveal himself to be who he is. He's going to step into the wing of a temple that's going to have to been rebuilt because he's going to step into the temple and declare himself to be God, and he's going to go after the Jews like you wouldn't believe. And the Bible says two-thirds of them are going to be killed during that time. Some of them are going to escape into the desert, and they're going to wait. They're going to look on him whom they've pierced. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Look at verses 10 through 14. God says, and I'm going to pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over firstborn. By the way, there are prophecies, I believe, that kind of hint at the fact that for three days, the Jews are going to be reciting Isaiah 53. He was crucified or put to death for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. They're going to be actually crying out Isaiah 53 in faith that it was Jesus who suffered for them. And God says He's going to pour out on them a spirit of, uh, of grace and mercy that they're going to beg as they look on Him whom they pierce, and they're going to mourn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Had and the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. By the way I love how God gets so specific here so that you just can't say well that's the church no, 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 this isn't the church. This is the nation of Israel. The kingdom was for Israel, but all along God had known that there were going to be many nations. And how do you become a descendant of Abraham? Not by being born a Jew, by faith. Because Abraham was given righteousness when he had faith in what God had promised. And God made Abraham the father of not only the Jewish people that receive him by faith, but also the Gentiles who receive him by faith. And that's how you get into the kingdom. And by God's grace, we've been grafted in and brought into the kingdom, and we're going to be a part of it. There's going to rule and reign with him on the earth. It's going to be an amazing time. But don't think for a second, like the church unfortunately teaches today. Many in the church teach today. By the way, there are whole denominations that are pro-Palestine and hate the Jews. Because their theology says that all these promises are ours now and he's done with Israel. The Bible's very clear. He's not done with Israel by no means. Don't think you're better than them because he's going to graft them back in and it's going to be an amazing day when that happens. Think about when the Jews of the world start to believe in Jesus. Isn't that going to be cool? They'll have an understanding and an insight we don't even fully grasp. All right. With all that as our foundation... Now it's time to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Are you ready? Abraham didn't have uh, 100% faith. No. Yeah. With all this, let's take a look now at the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now remember, we've already laid this out. The brokenness and the humble confessing of sin and repentance needed to enter the kingdom. Remember? You want to enter the kingdom? You don't enter the kingdom because you're a Jew. You don't enter the kingdom because you're righteous. You enter the kingdom humbly and with repentance and brokenness. Go to Romans chapter 3. You say, we just got back to Matthew. I know, but... Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 10 through 18. As it is written, no one is righteous. And by the way, in case you want to argue with that fact, he then says, no, not one. <laughs> yeah, but no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. And by the way, you want to have a fun study? Take a study Bible and look at all the Old Testament prophecies that they're pulling in, that they're quoting from in the next verses. All, what I'm reading here next, all is Old Testament quotes. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, some people will say, well, (laughs) I'll admit I'm a sinner, but I'm not really that bad. There are people that are worse than me. Let's let the Scripture speak to you. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, what, every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What the scripture says, it says to everyone. All right, keep that in mind. Go to James chapter 2, look at verse 10. James chapter 2, verse 10, it says this For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable. For all of it don't miss that if you're able to keep the whole law yet stumble at just one one point you're guilty in the eyes of God as if you broke it all why why according to what we've already heard and from the scriptures that if you're able to keep the whole law yet stumble at just one point you're guilty as if you broke it all because the, the measurement is perfection the measurement is perfection you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, God doesn't grade on a curve when it comes to sin. You want to be given righteousness, you have to get a 100%. You don't pass with a 99. If you get a 99, it's a zero because the only passing grade is 100 according to the scriptures. What? Well, how's that a curve? Yeah, well, I guess in people that understand that whole stuff. But there's yeah, but only the hundreds get in. Isn't that because we don't reckon we aren't righteous as God is? We aren't doing His will, and we actually reject. And that's, that's what sin is. So a little bit of rejection is... Uh, exactly. Well, then that's a big part of it. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go into the depth of what you just shared. But yes. But go with me to Luke. Chapter uh, 7, let me show you something. This is kind of important for us in the church age. I've been a pastor for many, many years. And i got to be honest with you, we're going to start talking as we break down each of these sections of the Sermon on the Mount about stuff that not only talked to the Jews or to the Gentiles and what's coming in the kingdom but the attitude of the kingdom people, we're going to be talking a lot about how this applies to us in the church age today. You're going to see that As we touched on at the end of last, last week, all the things in verses 1 through 12 had a correlation in the New Testament. Remember how we did that? You're going to find that a lot of stuff needs to speak to us and is going to speak to us. So be ready. You may find that the Sermon on the Mount hits a lot deeper. You're not going to be just studying and say, well, I'm interested to find out about the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus said. No, you may be surprised to find that as we do this, the Holy Spirit going to be taking you to a deeper walk with the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. Because what he's teaching is what a kingdom person really looks like. In Luke chapter 7, look at verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he, he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. By the way, this sounds familiar or similar to the one at the end of his life when Mary comes and breaks the jar, and they said, why was this waste? This isn't the same story. This is a different one. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, stop for a second. Let that sink in. The dude is judging Jesus. He's in his mind thinking if this guy really were a prophet, he'd know what kind of a person was touching him because that lady's a sinner. And Jesus says, I have something to say to you. And out loud, even though his thoughts are horrible toward Jesus, he goes, say it, teacher. I've been a pastor long enough to know that I've had lots of people kiss me, but they didn't mean it. (laughs) A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. That's that's like that's like a comment about it, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Of course, then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the people there are all like, who could this forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, keep in mind, Jesus said, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Well, didn't we just lay out that there's no one that's been forgiven more than anybody else? Because if you keep the whole law but stumble at one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Is there anybody that's been forgiven more than anybody else, according to the scriptures? No, so what is Jesus saying then when he says he who's been forgiven little loves little? I'm sorry? It's their understanding of how much they've been forgiven. If you think you've been forgiven little, you're going to love little. When you understand the depth of your depravity and your guilt before God, you will have a, a, a love for God that is greater because you'll see how much you really were forgiven. Listen to me, folks. I've dealt for too long, and I'm not going to say Christians. I've dealt for too long with church people who have judged those around them because they see themselves as more righteous than them. Oh, look how they're living. Look at what they're doing. Look at the sick stuff that they're putting on the Internet and all this stuff. If you honestly think that you're better, we're going to deal with that next week when we come back and dealing with blessed are those who mourn. If you honestly think you're better, you don't understand how much God forgave you. You might have got saved at six years old. You might have got saved at eight like I was. But it wasn't until I began to really understand my sin condition that when God saved me at eight years old, I was guilty as if I broke it all. Because even though I maybe not had done a whole lot of other stuff, I might have been pretty good when it came to keeping the law at eight years old. I had broken his law. But don't you still have to discern? You know what I'm saying? In what way? We're going to get to that next week. Hang on to that. We're getting back to that next week. What I'm talking about right now is us all getting to that place where we realize our spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're all poor in spirit. We're all spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the ones who realize this. That's why we're going to get into the blessed of those who mourn next week. But listen to me. In each of these promises, there's Good news. Have you noticed? Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Look closely. He says, Blessed are those who uh, are poor in spirit. And then he says, I got good news. Then he's going to say, Blessed are those who mourn. And then he says, I got good news. Blessed are the meek. I got good news. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I got good news. Listen to what the good news is for the blessed of those who are spiritually poor, who realize that they're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they're sinners. Blessed are those who realize there's no one righteous, not even one. Listen to what he says. I got good news for you. Yours is the kingdom. In other words, the, you realize you're a sinner in need of a savior? The kingdom's for you. Do you see it? The kingdom's not for the church people. The kingdom is not for those who think they're righteous. The kingdom is for those who realize I'm not righteous. I need righteousness from outside of me. We're going to get into this as we lay it all out. But think about this for a second. The Bible says that the only way we enter the kingdom is through faith in God's provision for our sin. Correct? We know him now as Jesus. If you are not a sinner, you don't need a savior. The kingdom's not for you. The kingdom's for those who realize they're sinners. And the longer or the sooner we come to a realization of the reality of how much God's forgiven us, the more we love, and it's going to affect everything else in our lives. You know how the Jews thought they were righteous and they compared themselves with others? Let's be honest. Hasn't that attitude kind of crept into the church a little bit as well? We think we're in because we're in the church. Uh, Don't think you're in just because you say you're a Christian. The only ones that get in are the ones who understand their lostness. And as you're gonna see next week, we're broken over that. And you're gonna see next week that brokenness means more than just brokenness when I got saved. It's a continual daily realization of the work. And that's what we're gonna get to next week, the work that God needs to do in all of us. So I'm gonna say to you right now for tonight as we close, Thank God for the fact that the kingdom's for you and me, for sinners. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's for you. It's for you. The moment you start thinking you're better than somebody, take it easy. You're starting to sound like the Pharisees who aren't getting into the kingdom. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.